Thank you for listening to Mormon Sex Info. This episode is an archived episode and is only now becoming publicly available. Mormon Sex Info relies on contributions. To contribute, please visit mormonsex.info. And now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to Mormon Sex Info. This is Natasha Helfer-Parker, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Jennifer Finlayson Fife. This is uh, her first time on Mormon Sex Info, but her and I have done several podcasts on other shows, specifically Mormon Mental Health, and um, I always have just a great time interviewing, so very glad to have her on. She is a member of the church, grew up in Burlington, Vermont, is one of eight children, studied psychology and women's studies at BYU, and went on to receive her master's and PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. She has a private practice in Chicago, where she works primarily with LDS couples on relational and sexual issues, and um, she has three kiddos, is married, and welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. So glad to have you. It's nice to... To be back in our old podcasting yeah. Yeah, <laughs> together. I know. Yeah, I always love doing interviews with you. Well, today we are here to talk about pornography, but this time from the perspective more of the spouse who feels betrayed in the process of a pornography disclosure or finding out about a pornography issue with, with their spouse. But before we get into that, do you want to introduce yourself further or tell us a little bit more about yourself? I think you've covered it, Natasha, but maybe um, the first interview we ever did together was one on my dissertation research, which I'll probably talk a little bit about today. So if people are interested in going back to that interview, I'm not sure where they'd find it, but (laughs) on my website. Oh, yeah, Yeah. maybe link to it. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll link to your website as well. I want to kind of just set up the discussion a little bit. We are both members of the Mormon Mental Health Association, which recently came out with a position regarding pornography and sex addiction, and we don't necessarily support that model. Part of the critique that came from that is then we're somehow minimizing the seriousness of the betrayal that people feel when Mm -hmm. they are in those types of situations. And so we just want to really kind of walk through some of those issues and also maybe give some helpful ideas as to how people, you know, if they're not going to go the sex addiction route, what are some routes they could go as far as getting the help that their, that their marriage needs to recover Mm -hmm. from something of that sort. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where we'll start. And why don't I just ask you a little bit about why this can be such a, an awful thing to kind of come across when you're, when you're especially... Um, a Mormon member and the way that we've set up pornography in our culture and what it means. And, and we'll probably be somewhat stereotypical. I mean, there, there does seem to be more women that find themselves in this position, but that's definitely yeah. not the case. There are, there are women who look at pornography and men who are in that other shoe. Yeah. So um, we can talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in that question, but I think um, first of all, I think it's extraordinarily puncturing and disorienting for a person to find out that their spouse has been lying to them. Um, And for many, and then lying to them in this particular way, I think can be very hard. You know, there's when you have assumed a certain kind of sexual 
fidelity, if that's the right way to say it, or the assumption that your spouse's sexual energy is being directed at you and you only, and your spouse is giving you the picture that that's true. Um, not because it is true, but because they want you to believe that about them and you find out otherwise, that can be extraordinarily disorienting um, because it throws into question who you're really married to, who is this person. It throws into question your own ability to track reality. It throws into question what is the meaning of your marriage and what is the meaning of your sexual relationship and what is the meaning of them seeking porn that doesn't include you, meaning that you're not finding it with them or something. They're, they're going and seeking it on their own. And I think that challenge to the marriage is hard. And I think it's especially hard given the way that we talk about pornography in the church which is really it's Satan's tool to get into it, to just, we talk about sexuality this way even, but especially pornography, that it's sort of the way of letting evil into your soul. Um, that it's a way of basically falling into the darkness of, of um, temptation. And so I think it's, punctures the idea that you have a solid, good man on the other side of you. And I think that's very challenging and very disorienting. And in a way that, you know, sometimes people use the language of betrayal trauma. I think it can feel very traumatizing. It can feel very overwhelming because it's rupturing your idea of what you had and the security of where you stood has now been taken from you. And so I think figuring out how you, how you respond to that is very, very important. It's very critical. And it's in my mind, an opportunity to really take a look at the marriage, to really take a hard look at yourself and to construct something better or different together as a couple. But I think Sometimes the way we talk about pornography and women in relationship to men looking at pornography, here's my thesis, is <laughs> we reinforce the problem rather than really address it. Right. So I think right off the bat, we want to say it's not that either you or I are ever going to say, we love porn, go look at porn. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, pornography is this wonderful thing that everybody should be a part of. That's not our message at all. At the same time, I think what we're trying to challenge is that there's a certain way that we are being trained to respond to porn, especially yes. in our church culture, so that the messages we hear are stay away from it completely. There's zero tolerance for pornography. So for people who have right. become maybe habituated towards that as a coping mechanism, that can be hard to just completely, you know, 100% right. not be a part of anymore. So then that sets up problems for marriages. And then also how to respond to it is that, you know, this, like you said, this is evil. This is going to destroy your marriage. And right. those can be kind, in a sense, self-fulfilling prophecies. So instead right. of taking the challenge to say, well, what is this about? And how are we going to deal with the pain involved? And how are we going to have to communicate now at a different level? Many people see right. this as destroying the foundation of their relationship. Right. 
Exactly. And you're know, right. The question of who, what does this mean about who we have, who we are as a couple? What does this crisis mean about how we each have participated in the marriage? And uh, not that the woman is responsible for the man's choices ever, but how have we co-constructed a marriage in which I've been being deceived? Is it that I have gone blind to who the other person is? Is it that I've given messages that I can't handle knowing about his sexuality? Those kinds of questions are important to look at. I think that there's so many layers at which to engage with this, but I think that we problematize pornography in a way that I think makes it, first of all, more compelling. <laughs> we we relate to it in a way that fosters immaturity relative to our sexuality rather than maturity. And I wish we were more about sexual maturity. And can you go ahead and give us a bit of how you would define that in this type of context? Yeah. So I, I think that we are really anxious, and we as members of the church are not alone in this, but we are very anxious about our sexuality. And that's normal in the sense that sexuality is, from a developmental framework, one of the more challenging tasks of moving into adulthood because it's it's a high it's a very powerful form of currency and how we engage with ourselves and other people and it's higher anxiety it's closer to home you know to really be able to accept yourself sexually and to really let yourself be known sexually takes a lot of development internally psychologically and so in that cultural anxiety that we have, we have tended to deal with it. And, and then coupled with that anxiety that all human beings have, we have a very high standard of sexual conduct. And what I think we do is out of our fear of not living up to that standard or our children not living up to that standard, we shame sexuality <clears throat> as in and of itself being a problem. Um, we really go overkill that eroticism or pleasure or desire are are really about letting Satan into your heart. And so, you know, if a child at 13 is masturbating, we treat them like they have a problem rather than they're doing something developmentally normal. I mean, even if you want to talk to them about channeling that energy or focusing on what they're trying to create with their sexuality – that's a very different response than saying that you are somehow sinning because you have decided to do what you're biologically being pressured internally to do. Okay. So that kind of disruption of one's relationship to their own sexuality is, in my opinion, a kind of cultural violence that we do to each other. And really sets up a profound anxiety about your own capacity for pleasure and eroticism and desire. And so, as I've probably said with, in interviews with you before, because I say it probably ad nauseum, but, you know, just if, if you were to at age, you know, as a child growing up, be told that if you like brownies and if you are drawn to sweets, that you are evil, you know, that that's wrong that that's bad, that you feel that way, that what that's going to do is make brownies and cake and <laughs> become either so shaming that you 
you become anorexic, like you just won't deal with it at all. Or it creates um, a kind of hyper focus on that reality in a way that you, you don't integrate it. You don't find a way to be in relationship to sweets that's good for you, that blesses your life, that, you know, that <clears throat> helps you find pleasure in life in a way that, that adds to your strength, doesn't undermine it. But when you problematize the desire, even <clears throat> you disrupt a process of how do you integrate this thing into your life that's good in proportion without it consuming you. So instead, you either become anorexic or you're 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 bulimic. You know, you're what are they, compulsively eating? Okay, I feel like we we do that with our sexuality. We don't foster the integration of our sexual desires into healthy way into into a healthy relationship to pleasure. And if you're going to move into adulthood, you have to learn how to come into healthy relationship with all sources of sensual pleasure, which is fundamental to being human and it's fundamental to finding joy. And we disrupt it. And so one of the ways that we give that message is around shaming masturbation and shaming pornography and this is, I'll get to the betrayal part in a minute, but I'll say a couple more things about it and then I'll get to the betrayal piece. I think that, for example, when I was 10 or nine or so, my father had a book on his top shelf called The Naked Communist. And I scaled his bookshelf to get to it <laughs> um, because I wanted to see if there were any naked communists inside. <laughs> and probably... It was good for me that there weren't. <laughs> I'm not sure that seeing Stalin naked would have been good, but anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I guess I'm saying that's a natural curiosity. And I'm not here to say like, oh, marriages need porn. I'm just saying like that the fact that someone is drawn to it doesn't mean anything's going wrong. Figuring out what relationship you want to it, if any, and how it relates to your larger goal of being capable of being and loving, intimate partner, which I think is what creates the most happiness in life, to be able to bring your sexuality into a committed, loving context. How, if that fits in or doesn't, is a much better question or a much better frame than don't do it at all, or that, that it's shaming in and of itself, or the interest in it is shaming. Because um, if you can't accept that part of yourself, you're going to struggle either in compulsivity or restrictiveness that undermines your self-acceptance and your self-development. So that's the frame in which I think many people are, many people in the church are trying to navigate their sexuality. And then I think, so there's a lot of anxiety around it culturally and a lot of accessibility of porn. And so it's just easy to stumble into it. And we're not asking ourselves a question, what relationship, if any, do I want to this and what would it look like and what would and can I be honest about it if I do want a relationship to this? Can I back up my own position enough to actually stand up for it? Instead, I think men in the church are given a dual message of entitlement around sexuality coupled with a message that their sexuality can be destructive. And that fosters a lot of the, I mean, lots and lots of Mormon men look at pornography. And so you have this like idea that you can't do it or you're bad, but that, you know, your wife's not putting out enough or whatever, because of your, your sexual entitlement will often drive you to justify 
doing a behavior that you know she wouldn't be comfortable with, <clears throat> you're not sure you're comfortable with, you haven't, you can't validate it enough to stand up for it and say, I want to do this. And yet many, many people will go and say, you know, given that what I can't get from you or how unhappy I am with you, I'm going to go and, and sneak this and um, betray our assumptions, okay, about who I'm supposed to be and feel justified in doing that. And it's part of what I think is very dysregulating for women. Again, I'm going with the stereotype, but women finding out it's not just like what you've been looking at pictures of other women, you know, what you've been doing this and I had no idea, but like how, who is this person that's willing to look so righteous and good and yet he's willing to lie to me day after day after day? about what he does and who he is. And that's... And lie to the system. So the bishop yes. and, in other words, a lot of these men have callings and are serving and are doing... Absolutely. Kind of that picture of the righteous priesthood man. Right. And yet exactly. this can seem like now you're leading a double life almost. Absolutely. I think that it's disorienting also because we have cultivated um, in our way of thinking about men and women, not just the entitlement of men and their natural sexuality, right? And this kind of partial culpability of women, like you should be putting out so he doesn't go look at porn because that's how much he has this sex drive. This is what, you know, fuels the entitlement is he has this natural sex drive that's a part of being a male that if you don't gratify it, the young women don't stay modest and the wives don't keep putting out, he's going to go and do this. That's one of the messages we have. But also the idea that part of what's so hard about it, I think, is that many women have thought that what they're signing on for when they get married is that this person is going to validate my sexuality, that he's going to validate me make me feel like a whole person. In fact, I'll even, in many cases, curtail some of my development as a person to be married to you, to fold into your identity. And you then should give me a sense of self and give me a sense of worthiness and make me feel that my choices are legitimate and that I'm, you need to make me feel like I'm an equal to you. And that's the kind of implicit contract. And what's often really troubling is like, not only is he not making me feel good about myself. Okay. He's, he, he not only, you know, not only has he exposed that he's not that quintessential good LDS man who's leading me into heaven and leading me into a good life. He's and not our living our family and our entire family. He's betrayed that. And it's so invalidating of me. Like he's, he's punctured my dependency on him. I can't depend. This is the person I thought I could trust and I can't trust him. This is the person I thought I could follow. And who am I following exactly? Like, who is this guy? And his sexuality, he's not using it to validate me. You know, he's, he's directing it at least at other images. And what does it mean about my sense of self relative to him? And so for many women, it's, it's, it feels very personal in the invalidating 
it sends. I mean, it feels very personal in many ways. It's very personal in the sense that it ruptures the contract, the implicit contract around who he is and who she is. And it ruptures the sense of sexual safety that was there, or at least people hoped was there. And it ruptures the sense that I can, in this marriage, not have to worry about being able to validate my own sexuality, my own sense of self. I was depending on him to do that, and he's not doing it. Does that make sense, Natasha? I don't know if you want to ask me clarifying questions. or No, I think that that all makes sense. In fact, I'm just going to kind of go through some of my thoughts and piggybacking sure. a lot of what you're triggering for me to think about. I really liked your setup about the messaging that we receive and it really does seem very cyclical to me. It's like this pattern, this rut that we're in, where on some very basic level, we say sex is good, but you know, mm-hmm. there's this huge but, and that's where all this anxiety comes in that you've described so well. And so mm-hmm. then from a very early age, our teenagers are being given messages around how to negotiate their sexuality with themselves, which is not often from a place of personal authenticity. Right. And so then you take that type of broken sexuality and underdeveloped sexuality and get married with it. Mm-hmm. And with all these expectations that we have around Mormon, especially temple marriage, that it's going to be just this quintessential experience that's going to really uh, be the culmination of right. your adulthood and that everything is going to be filtered through that marriage. And all problems are really going to come from without, right? Instead of from within. Right. Is I think what a lot of the expectation is. I talk about what I call protection model marriages versus intimacy model marriages. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the language I've been using. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, I don't know your experience, but my experience working with Mormons is that they're generally like really good people, you know, really loving people, really devoted to one another committed to one another, even when there is this type of problem involved Mm -hmm. in their marriage. And, um, and so it's this protection model marriages is what I call this idea that because we've set it up as this huge issue and it's unsafe to share with you any sexual Mm -hmm. part of myself that doesn't fit this very prescribed model then yes. I'm I'm both protecting you from my awfulness, <laughs> right? And I'm protecting myself from your reaction to my awfulness, right? uh, yes. And and so then we can, and this comes from a very loving, well-intentioned space. Because if I tell you this, it might destroy our marriage, or I will not be safe, or you will not be safe, and and therefore I need to keep this secret in order to really prioritize our marriage. I think that's how a lot of people yeah. see that. Can I say it slightly differently though? I I don't I'm not as quick to sign off that it comes from a loving place. I mean, I know what you're saying. It is like I don't want to put you through the horror and I don't want to even take myself on about how my behavior is incongruent from what I profess. But I don't think that is coming from a place of love. I think it's coming from a place of fear around challenging one's development both personally and in the marriage about not wanting to deal with the discomfort of having to grow up and yeah. so no, it's, and I, I get it I get it that it's protective in the way you're talking about which is I have been told a good man takes away a woman's anxieties that's for sure sure that's different than that's good for a woman 
or a man <laughs> to do that. Yeah, and I would I would totally agree with that. I think when I yeah. say love, I think that's that's where they yes. think they're coming from. You know, like I'm right, exactly. very loving in this approach right. versus right. an intimacy model marriage, whereas that's kind of what you're talking about is what really is good for us. And and yeah. oftentimes what we know is that what's really good for us isn't always easy to get or it's hard to get there. And yes. it's uncomfortable to get there. Absolutely. And so then that would mean really having to show who I am to you and right. deal with the discomfort of the showing of that. Right. And we're really kind of the symbolism that we really are naked in front of one another and that we're right. accepting of one another in that naked space, even though at times your nakedness makes me uncomfortable. Right. Or my, exactly. my, my nakedness makes me uncomfortable. Right. And so that's a very different model that I think would be very beneficial as, as people. Well, try and it's a very these. theologically supported model, what you're talking about, even though, even though what we talk about most is the protection model. I've never used that language, but I think it's good. It's helpful. The, the intimacy model is really what I think you can find in Christian theology. When I look at Christian theology, it's very much, a model that relationship pressures you, your development, and it pressures you towards truth. Like to, you know, that even sexuality is to know a partner, to know and be known. That courage to really know yourself and to know your partner, it takes moral courage because to really take in who people are pressures your development in ways that are uncomfortable. There's times my husband has said things to me and I'm like, la, 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 I don't want to deal with what you're saying because I have to grow up if I'm going to deal with what you're saying. And I don't feel like growing up. I want you to just take care of me and make me feel good as I am. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but that's, I think, to work against the, our theo, uh, the best in our theology, which is about eternal progression and love pressuring you into being a better person relationships pressuring you into being a better person. We're very quick to want to collude in protecting and being protected from development, not sure. from not from evil, but from development. And that's important distinction to make. Yeah, so the framing could be so much better as far as what to expect from marriage if instead of this temple ceremony uh, or your marriage ceremony representing the quintessential moment of arriving that it's just the beginning. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just the, the moment where you say, okay, guess what? Uh, we've, we've gone through this symbolism together and this ritual together. And what this means is that we are now going to start growing up together. That's right. I just made a promise that's going to kick my butt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good thing there's cake and presents because <laughs> we're going to need them. <laughs> we're going to need them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And um, exactly. And I think that's a lot what gets punctured when a woman finds out her husband's been looking at porn and lying to her about it is that whole protection model is exploded. Right. Right. Well, and I'll just add one more thing, too, that I've been thinking a lot about is this messaging, I think, that is inherent to Mormon marriages is that sexuality really belongs to your partner. Absolutely. My, yes. my sexuality belongs to my partner, even before I meet my partner. Absolutely. You know, so even when I'm 12 or 13 or 15 years old, right. I'm being really told that my sexuality is for my yes. partner to discover, for my partner to right. own. Right. Women get of, this even more than men, but absolutely. Yes. It's, instead of it being my own. 
That's right. That's why we don't like masturbation. And, and our cultural fantasy is if you're really a good person, your spouse will awaken this in you on your wedding night. And of course, it'll be there in full force <laughs> rather than just like in psychological development. You have to belong to yourself first before you have anything to share. You have to have some relationship to your own body and your own God-given sexuality to have a reservoir in which to share yourself because you have to know something about who you are. And, you know, a lot of people do end up developing that in marriage to even know what it is they have to share. But we have so much anxiety about that, that first of all, we, we come into marriage often underdeveloped, not just sexually, but psychologically because of that anxiety and that distancing from our sensual, sexual bodies. Even though we have a theology that supports that you don't do that. Okay. But anyway, that's another idea. But I think that to your point, Natasha, I think that's exactly right, which is that your sexuality exists to validate me. And if you have any other thought that isn't in validation of me, that's a threat. Rather than I think a more mature model, which is, no, my spouse's sexuality belongs to him and mine belongs to me. And we have a decision about whether or not we share ourselves with one another. We have a decision about how we relate to our sexuality and the other person and whether or not that creates goodness, creates better people, a, a stronger marriage. You know, my genitals are not half his and vice versa. And so that's also part of this, which is, you know, I think there's, again, I'm not blaming partners for their spouse's choices, you know, but I think that sometimes women, I'll just go with the stereotype, will get married and sexuality makes them anxious. And so then they say, like, if you love me, let's not have much sex. Okay. I'll put out, I'll give you lousy sex once a month <laughs> to do my job, to keep you from looking at porn, but I'm not going to really develop my sexuality because it makes me uncomfortable. And in the name of righteousness, I'm going to ask you to be okay with that because you're the hedonist over there who wants it more frequently. And when you find out you don't have your spouse in your back pocket, that they have been using their sexuality in ways outside of your awareness, I'm not saying that I justify the person on the man, let's say, who is doing that because it's cowardly to not stand up and deal with the problem in your marriage. You know, to go and split off in that way is, is just adding to the problem that was already there. But it's also a disruption to the idea that I can't just keep your sexuality directed at me, whether or not I want to deal with your sexuality. Many people want, I don't want you to bring your sexuality anywhere else, but I don't want to have a se sexual relationship with you. And right. so it can challenge that. Which is one of the big challenges of sexuality, if you think about it, versus any other aspect of our married life. You know, if, if I've got mm -hmm. an intellectual interest that you don't share, well, I go mm -hmm. and join a book club without you. That's right? right. Or if I've got an emotional need that I, you don't share, I go and have a best friend outside of our marriage, right? So that's right. Those are, we don't expect to get 100% of our needs really met in most other areas of our lives. But in right. sexuality, there is right. this expectation back to this ownership thing that yes. it's going to be you and me, baby, no matter what. And that's it. And that's anything right. that, that falls outside of that is, is a betrayal and is going to be a, a threat to our marriage. Yes, exactly. And I, you know, I think you can negotiate for what you want in a marriage, of course. Um, 
and what kind of relationship you want to have. But I think many people, as I was saying, want the clarity that that's what you're going to do if you're a good man anyway, but I'm not going to necessarily make it worth your while to direct your sexuality here. <laughs> Meaning if you're going to say, I really want that kind of a sexual exclusive relationship, which I, I can certainly understand, then it pressures you to develop yourself sexually if you're going to be a good person and, and be a fair partner. Well, and as you were talking about male entitlement, I think it's it's this weird thing because we definitely have this patriarchal culture, and yet it's a benevolent patriarchy. Yes. And so there's entitlement on the female aspect yeah, as absolutely. well. You know, from no this, question. what you were just sharing that I, absolutely. I, I don't want to develop myself sexually, and so therefore I'm expecting you as my partner to just right. be okay with my non-sexual self, even though you're That's supposed right. to meet all your needs in our That's right. marriage. Yes, and this is something I talked about in a um, in a chapter of a book that is coming out in the next next few months. But it's uh, basically that I have really seen a lot of women who don't just submit to, oh, he wants sex, I'm going to just, you know, my dissertation was really about this idea of women uh, losing their sexual agency. And I stand by that. I think many women in the church are, are not sexual agents, but that doesn't mean that they're just submitting to men's sexual desires that they've sub in a sense, subverted the, the, that pa benevolent patriarch script and said, look, if you're really a benevolent guy, <laughs> you will, you know, you will tolerate that I'm less sexual than you, that I'm weaker than you, that you are being a brute if you want more from me than I feel comfortable with. And so you can control from a one down position. And that's, um, you know, Women know how to get control just like men do. But again, neither one of those control positions, you know, it's often control, control battles within marriage, pressures people to grow up and to love. And but certainly women know how to do it, too. Right. So, OK, so I think that we've spent a lot of time kind of setting up why these tend to be issues in our culture as far as why there exists pornography usage to begin with at rates that seem higher than other parts of the nation and, or at least we're paying for it in more honest mm -hmm. ways than other parts <laughs> yeah. of the nation. And, um, and there's a lot of talk about this currently in our culture. I, I don't know that there's a general conference address where pornography or masturbation aren't mentioned these days. Mm -hmm. And we do have more access, like you said, to pornography than ever before with, mm -hmm. you know, internet access and all of that. So let's move on to then what should we be upset about? If I find that my spouse has been acting in a way that I was not aware of sexually, especially when it comes to porn use, what should I be upset about? And maybe we can even talk a little bit about, is this cheating? So should I be upset yeah. about the fact that he's now cheating Well, it is. Me? it is lying. It's not cheating in my mind. Yeah, so um, talk a little bit about how you distinguish those two. And well, of a cheating is that you're actually engaging another human being in my mind, that you're actually cultivating a relationship with another human being. And I realize that some people do that. They can find a particular person through a chat room and they can keep an ongoing relationship with someone they've never met. Uh, that's, that's different than looking at porn. I think that lying is, is a form of betrayal. I mean, you're, you are letting your spouse, you're, you're, you're fostering a belief in your spouse's mind that you're one person while you're actively being another kind of person. And that's 
I have an issue with that. <laughs> I, I, I think marriage is a choice, not a prison. And you, if you steal your spouse's choice, you steal their ability to make decisions about who, what they want. If you're basically leaving out information you know that they would be interested in having about you and making decisions for themselves, that's uh, a very indecent thing to do in my mind. So you can say, look, um, I had a client who once basically said to his wife, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop looking at porn. I'm not going to stop hiring prostitutes. So deal with it. Okay. That was his response. And as indecent as that is, arguably, I thought it was at least decent that he's like saying, I'm not going to change anything. Okay. He was honest. He's honest. So at least she could. So then my response to her is, did you get that? Okay. He's being really clear that if you're going to be with him, this is what he's going to be doing. And now you get to make a choice. It may not be the choice you wish you had to make. You know, I understand you wanting him to choose differently, but he's not going to. So now at least you're freed up to make choices for yourself. And that's at least decent in the sense that you're not hijacking someone's life. So one of the things you have to be upset about is that my spouse has felt entitled to steal my choices, to keep information from me that he knew would be relevant to me. That's how he knew to hide it. And uh, that's not kind, not loving. Now, a lot of times people say, well, I just felt so guilty and I wanted to protect you and I want all those kinds of things. But that sure makes it sound nicer when in reality, it's like I didn't want to be accountable to you and let you really and to myself and really make you let you know who I am, even if it's problematic. I think a second reason to be upset is how does my spouse see me that he thinks that he could get away with this? How does my spouse see me that he thinks lying to me is a superior alternative to being straight up? And why do I think he sees me that way? And what, if anything, do I have, um, a, what role do I have in that, if any, in him seeing me in that demeaning way? That I can't handle information about him, that I can't manage myself if I were to know the truth about him. You know, what... What, what sense do I make of the fact that he is choosing to see me in that light? Is there truth in it or isn't there? Um, and that's not just uh, a challenge to him. It's a challenge to yourself. Yeah, because um, the reality is that oftentimes that is what ends up happening. Oftentimes people share their innermost vulnerabilities and, and exactly yes. what they were afraid of happens. You know, the, the wife gets the kids and takes off and that's it. That's the end. Yes. yes. Right. And so what does it mean about me and him? And then I think a third thing, if your spouse comes and tells you, okay, that's one challenge. They've come forward. They said, look, I've been hiding something from you. I'm feeling uncomfortable with it. I want to be straight with you. As disorienting as it is, that's an easier blow than you finding it and realizing they've been hiding it and had no seeming intention of telling you. Right. Okay. I so that's that. also, that's also 
okay, how do I make sense of that? And was he ever going to tell me? And how long has it been going on? And how long has my spouse been willing to keep me in the dark? If I hadn't found out, they'd continue to be keeping me in the dark. And how long would that have continued? And how long would that have continued? Exactly. But And then I think another thing to be upset about is more around your relationship to yourself because you realize that your radar is off. Your own ability to track reality and who your intimate partner is has been challenged. You're saying, I, I've been trusting this person who's not been trustworthy. You, you know, that's a much bigger blow if they've been having an affair, okay, than they're looking at porn, in my opinion, it's a much bigger blow. Um, but still, I've been making assumptions that this is like the good patriarch of the family leading us and at least acting like a godly person. And yet he's lying to me. Okay. So he has a, he has a different reality than what I've perceived. I guess I'll say it that way. And so how do I make sense that I couldn't track that in him? What does that say about him? And what does that say about my own ability or willingness to deal with reality? When people talk about how do I get back to trusting my spouse, often it's around this issue that they have to really deal with within themselves is that they have been placing the question of trusting on their partner. And that is the problem. And you don't solve it by placing it back on them. Because the person that you were trusting has demonstrated they're not trustworthy. And they may be telling you now they're trustworthy, but that's what they were telling you before. (laughs) Okay. And so now can I trust this person or not? You know, the issue is that you have to you got to deal with your own radar. You have to deal with your own naivete or your own desire to co-construct an easier marriage or an easier reality than the one that you actually live in. I think sometimes we have this yeah. expectation that we would know or will know. And the reality, mm-hmm. I think, in marriage is that really there is yeah. no guarantee. You are, you're trusting yeah. and putting yourself in a position of vulnerability with another person that you have very little control over. Yes, So I would maybe say it very slightly differently, which is you are opening yourself up to a person that there's no guarantee that they won't hurt you or die. (laughs) Okay. Right. There are risks connected to letting someone matter to you inherently. And you can, you can keep yourself from letting somebody matter to you. And many people try to do that in marriage, actually. I'll let me matter to him, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to let him matter to me as a way of trying to manage that, that vulnerability, that exposure. But I also think we in our church culture have cultivated a kind of blindness and dependency in women that pressures their under-functioning in this way, you know, that you should just defer to his judgment. You know, as long as he's following God and he looks like he's following God, you can, you can sort of let yourself off the hook in this way. And you can just trust that all will be well as long as you're living a good, righteous life and you can track that he is. But see, that's just not good enough because you've already tracked that he was, you thought he was, but he wasn't. I think that in reality, when when women have found out about their husband's porn use that he was keeping from them or affairs, that there was often data points that did not fit together, but that they did not want to deal with. And they willingly kind of put them aside. I'm not saying that you can always track everything, okay, or that you have control in a marriage. You don't. You don't. You, you know, you, people have agency. They get to make their choices. 
But the other part to look at is where have I colluded in my own underfunctioning? Where have I not really taken responsibility for the marriage that we're creating? Where have I not really taken responsibility for my decision to trust? So I will say to people, my goal is not to help you trust your spouse. That's not my goal. My goal is to help you to get better at determining if your spouse is trustworthy. And it puts the sense of onus on the person who's offering the openness and offering the trust around tracking the person that they're with rather than looking for, you know, someone who's going to take care of them. I feel like that a lot of times in the way we talk about women whose husbands are looking at porn is you basically whip him into shape along with the church until he's pleaded and promised that he's worthy of, of taking care of you again. That's, that's what we want. And that's not the right model for developing strong people and equally yoked partners in a marriage. And strong sexuality. Exactly. Because yeah, I think I would add one other thing that I see a lot of women very upset about, which I think this is much larger than the Mormon culture, is that women are constantly given the message that their value is in their sense of attractiveness and, sex yes. and sexiness, right? And desirability, so, yes. And mm -hmm. so if you're all of a sudden realizing that your husband's looking at another woman who is maybe feels more attractive, you know, or has bigger boobs or has tighter stomach Abs, muscles yeah. or mm -hmm. not stretch marks from having the four kids you've had together mm -hmm. or that can feel very, um, invalidating. Yeah. Yeah. And very threatening and, and mm. just completely attack a woman's self-esteem just because of, of how our value has been That's right. taught to us from the get go. No question. No question. And it really pressures a woman around the issue of, am I really going to keep buying into this baloney that my value is somehow attached to the perkiness of my breasts. Um, I mean, I may resent that I think he thinks that, but am I going to think that? Am I going to buy into that idea? Right? Have, am I a woman who's functioned in a way that's worthy of her husband's respect and loyalty and honesty, or haven't I? And if I haven't, then I, I need to deal with that. Uh, but if I have, then I need to see that this is a man who may be handicapped in his ability to really love and respect what he has. Well, so, and I would even push a little bit on that because we know that sexual erotic templates don't always follow what we love and respect. So in other words, I might find something attractive, but that doesn't that's mean right. that I, I agree with you. Love yeah, my I'm not partner saying, less, yeah, I, right? or, I fully agree with you. I'm not exactly. Yeah. And I'm not saying research. like just because, I mean, we're all drawn to young perky bodies. We right. all are. <laughs> okay. Biologically. <laughs> right. We're wired up to do that. I mean, and there's nothing weird about that. Um, but the issue is, is if you're really cultivating the capacity to love someone deeply that, that even if you're drawn to that and you find it arousing that uh, you're not going and marrying up, so to speak. That's the wrong way to say it. You're marrying down <laughs> by right. finding somebody younger, trading it in because you want perkiness as opposed to really caring for the soul of another person who's naturally, whose body's going to sag just like yours is. Okay. So it's not, I agree with you. I'm not saying that we should only be attracted to our aging partner and nothing else if we're a loving person. No question. It's really around how do I direct my sexual interests in a way that doesn't undermine my partner, 
doesn't undermine me and that fosters uh, our ability to be strong individuals and a strong couple. Right, right. Yeah, I love that because then it makes room for erotic fantasy yes. or templates or ideas yes. without that threatening piece. Absolutely. That this doesn't Absolutely. mean just because you have these thoughts or ideas does not mean you love me less or that we're not like That's right. more or less committed to one another. Yeah, part of being a strong person is I can really make room for you and your sexuality, even if it doesn't all validate me and that I that I can love you enough to tolerate that um, and not just love you enough, be accepting of myself enough that I can tolerate that and recognize that reality in myself as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And the research supports that, especially for men that look at pornography, that there's very low correlation to how that they feel about their sexual partners. Yes. They can enjoy looking at pornography and still have very much attraction and desire yeah. for their partners, just like yes. may women like Absolutely. to read romantic novels. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that competes right. with their, their partners either. Right. Different. Genre, I think there's like, you know, Reese, that's right. I think there's two tensions like within human beings. Uh, there's two poles within human beings. And one is that we want to pair bond, you know, we want monogamy, we want that kind of stability of another person to share our life with and to share our sexuality with. And the other pull is that we want sexual novelty. And those two can certainly seem to compete with one another. I think that the best marriages are when you can bring novelty into the security of a marriage that you can keep developing and expanding yourselves in ways that allow you to have both that security of a person that you know and love and allowing a sort of development within each of you and together that allows for novelty around what you do together, what, who you, who you become like the, the basically I was talking to my husband about this this morning, that the happiest marriages are rated as, as as expansive marriages rather than contracting ones. And by expansive, that people feel like by function of being in the marriage, that they are developing who they are, both by the ways that the marriage partner is pressuring their development and that they've pressured the development of their partner as well. I don't know if that makes sense. But basically, they feel like they are evolving as human beings, as individuals within the context of the marriage or evolving sexually within the context of the marriage. Um, and, and by contrast, the least happy marriages are where people resent and shut themselves down and constrain and try and make marriage so safe that they feel they've self-betrayed their development and they've betrayed, um, the development of their partner. So I think that what we want is you get married, you get in, you, you have sex in missionary position in your bed (laughs) and it all stays there in a way that feels safe and good to both people. That's what we want. And in reality, if you're going to really have a sexually satisfying, erotically satisfying marriage, you, you have to work harder than that to really come to accept your sexuality, accept your partner's sexuality to let yourself be known, to know your partner, and to let that process stretch you. 
as a couple in ways that make you more solid and more loving. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Very well said. So let's move into then we've, you know, we've kind of said we're not fans of the sexual addiction model and treating these issues. And for many of the reasons that we've talked about, and we've talked about why we should be upset and what types of things we probably need to be addressing. So then let's move into how do we go about that? How do we go about doing some of these things that you're talking about? Sexual maturity, um, sexual contracting, sexual exploration. Well, I, I think if it, I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, I mean, what you have to do is you got to get a hold of what's true. Um, in the marriage and as hard as it is, like I say, a lot of times the truth sets you free, but it makes you miserable first. (laughs) So what is the meaning? Why have you been looking at porn? What does it mean to you? How have you justified keeping the information from me? I mean, it basically it's, it's asking and tolerating, taking in the answers. Okay. And tolerating, taking a look at whether or not you think your spouse is being straight with you. So that when we're Uh, having these conversations, it's not this, you're going to have a complete meltdown every time he answers a question. Like there's a real right. conversation here that I'm willing to That's engage exactly in, right. even though it's painful. That's very good point that I have to stabilize myself to deal with reality. I can be here a mess and punishing pulling and distraught. Out my hair. Yeah. <laughs> pulling, pulling out my hair, my hair and, and then say, tell me why you're looking at this. Okay. That's a very different conversation because you're basically giving the message of you owe me you owe me, buddy, and you better give me the right answer. And then you're going to get another liar. You're going to get another version of lying on the other side because (laughs) you're co-constructing a marriage in which you can't deal with the reality of who your spouse is. And so I'm not justifying your spouse lying, but you are co-constructing not dealing with the marriage that you're in. So it takes a lot of courage to deal with the marriage you're in. So that's the first thing is like, can I calm myself down enough to deal with what is? And that's not a small thing. And oftentimes this is where I think professional help can really be useful because it helps having that third party there kind of mitigating this type of conversation. Yes, exactly. Helping people keep track of what's happening both inside them and in the other person. And I think, uh, you know, so then the questions are like, you know, what have you been looking at and how long and, and why, what sense do you make of it? And, um, there, you know, we talk about porn as a monolith and I don't think it is. I mean, there's, there's the whole range on the internet, unfortunately, of, of you can, you know, looking at beautifully, beautiful naked women. Okay. As one end of the spectrum to raping children. Okay. So porn is not just Porn. I mean, there's meaning, I think, at least in understanding who your spouse is around what they've been seeking out. What's the erotic template about? What's the erotic template about, right? And I'm not here to shame any, you know, I, you know, I have a client who wears nylons and I, I, I don't think that it causes, it's not problematic. I mean, it's not just because it doesn't validate your erotic template doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problematic template. Okay. But it's at least worth understanding. Like, who are you in this way? And what is it that you're seeking? And what's the uh, classic, um, if your sexuality is different than my sexuality, then it's a problem. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's It's perverse and disgusting. Exactly. (laughs) Only what I'm comfortable with is healthy sexuality. Exactly. 
So that can be hard to like get your hand head around who is my spouse in this way because it may not be what I wanted it, him to be. Um, how do you make sense of lying to me about it? How do you make sense of hiding it from me? Um, what is it, you know, I think just answering it, you know, do you think it has anything, uh, you know, a lot of times we're afraid like it has to do with my inadequacy and my, my uh, inadequacy as a sexual partner, my inadequacy of my body. Well, sometimes women fear that, but then they make their husband responsible for reassuring them that that isn't the case rather than. I seem to think this has something to do with our sexual relationship. Okay. Why do I think that? Maybe our sexual yeah. capacity is lacking. Yes. Like do, do exactly. So am I just beating him up for sort of exposing a problem that I haven't wanted to deal with either? Um, and does that really have to be the worst thing? Like, yeah. Are we supposed to know everything about sex, especially towards yeah. the beginning of our marriages? Isn't that something or, right. that we're supposed to be getting better at with time anyway? Right. Exactly. So is there something about who we are as a couple that is a problem in your mind and that you think we need to address? Or does this not have anything to do with it, but I, you just want privacy in your sexuality? And what sense do you make of wanting that privacy? And, um, or do you want to share it with me? You know, and, and would I want to do that? I mean, those are the kinds of questions to basically understand what it means so that you can make good judgments and you can have the spectrum in terms of who people are that you could have somebody who's been sexually frustrated and guilty and kind of doing this uh, and they really want to be more aligned internally but have not done a good job of standing up for it and want to have a better sexual relationship with their spouse and haven't done a good job of standing up for it but you recognize in the exploration that uh, we've kind of gone off course a bit and we need to re course correct. And I think we can create a more open, honest sexual relationship. And then you might find out more about your spouse and find out it's darker and more problematic than you thought <laughs> that it, maybe they're looking at porn, but they've also been in chat rooms and going to, um, strip clubs and in more compulsive behavior, you know, more, more pervasive and problematic behavior, you know, you could find that out. I'm not certainly not saying that's you, that you're going to find that out. Right. It, or but then you have been spent that you weren't aware yeah, of. Yeah, or... that you weren't exactly, exactly that they've been exactly right that you've been spending family money that you were keeping that information from your spouse or your spouse was keeping it from you. I should say. So you know, you then you have a different problem. What does it mean that my partner's willing to go out that far on a limb and keep me in the dark and and then the issue of how remorseful are they for the deception? Meaning, I'm not saying, you know, you, you got to shame this person into um, compliance, but like how accountable are they? That's what I want to say. How, how willing are they to deal with their behavior and how transparent and honest are they willing to be about it? Because that's a very important indicator of who you're really married to and so it's not just a porn issue. It's really about who is this person in relationship to the porn and how are they really accounting for their behavior, their choices, and their role in the marriage because there's a world of difference between, you know, like I've worked with people where, yeah, they're looking at porn, their spouse finds out, and maybe they start going to SA meetings and they stop looking at porn, but the real issue has never been dealt with, which is like in one case that I'm working with, where it's 
it's about a, a long-standing marriage of entitlement for him, putting on the picture of a good man while he basically uh, heroically does things in the family and then goes and takes what he wants whenever he wants it and really doesn't know his wife, really isn't invested in her, just wants the comfort of that role while he basically does what he wants to do in the world. Okay. So the porn is like a snapshot into that picture. Okay. That's one, one version, but going to SA meetings is not going to deal with the larger psychological problem and relational dynamic that that marriage is about. And so you have to take a look at what does this mean? If I'm going to know what problem I have to deal with. Yeah. Especially when the pressure I think on men in our church is very much about that piece of get in line, comply, yeah, 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 you know, definitely. stuff down your own feelings right. or desires. Right. There's a Go part the of your, yeah, pen. there's a part of your sexuality that's evil and degenerate anyway. So instead Absolutely. of letting you explore that, we're going to stuff that down even further. Well, and so I completely agree with that. And we're going to collude in the idea that the sexuality is the problem, where at least in the case I'm just talking about, rather than your narcissism, your self-service. You're really your inability to invest in another human being, the way that you deceive in a pretty chronic way around giving people a picture of who you are rather than what, who, who you really are. He's very happy to take the, the 12 steps. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like 12 steps is a way of like, yep, here I am being good again. Yeah. I feel really bad about this part of me. Porn's the issue. Um, I'm really, you know, it's been 29 days. I mean, it's just, it's. I'm not being dismissive of people who are trying to align their behavior with what they believe, but that's, this is a way of doing more of the same problematic behavior, which is I'm now looking like that good guy again, but I'm not really dealing with who I've been in this marriage. So, and I think what you're getting at is that obviously not everybody falls into all these examples we're talking about. Like if you have narcissistic personality disorder, that's going to look a lot different Yes. And if you're clinically depressed or yes. if it's just really not any mental health disorder, yeah. in, in you're just particular, sexually you're just curious, relational yeah. issues or sexually yes. curious or whatever. So there's so many different possibilities of how this plays out and why. Exactly. Well, that's a big that's, part of the critique of the sex addiction model is that it really yeah. doesn't look at the underlying diagnosis. It just focuses solely on the sexuality piece. Right. And because we're so anxious about sexuality and we're so eager to see families intact, couples intact, um, we're really quick to just want to make that the problem and then offer the solution of self-control and 12 steps and so on, rather than looking at what is this saying to us about us. It may be saying something dark and ugly and it may be saying, saying something not that you know, developmentally appropriate, you know, like we just need to kind of grow up as a couple and make sense of who we each are. So yeah, the monolith of porn and the monolith of the statement and certainly porn addiction is just problematizing something in a way that doesn't offer a real solution and doesn't actually give you an accurate picture into what's happening. I really liked what you said as far as figuring out what is true because I'll talk about the majority again. So the majority of my clients are not narcissistic personality disorder, right? right? Although they show up for sure every now and then, but the majority of my clients have a marriage that I would say is very functional. They mm-hmm. do well in parenting together. They do well in financially, mm-hmm. you know, contributing together. They do well in emotional 
caring for one another. They do well with having intellectual hobbies and interests together. And then this happens, you know, where this uh, disclosure happens or this finding out happens. And it seems like the entire relationship is identified and defined by this one area in their life where they have been struggling. And so that's a really interesting dynamic too. It's like, let's not define the entire marriage through this one problem. Let's look at this problem. Let's, like you said, bring all these things to light and look at how this problem now opens up a whole new dimension of an area of our marriage where we do need to address it. Right. But let's not define every other aspect of our relationship and have it all be a lie. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I've certainly worked with couples where I feel like this becomes the beating stick on the guy. Um, and, and the wife can get the sort of moral high ground. And so she can use that to kind of beat him down rather than taking a look at herself in the marriage, the ways that she hasn't been truthful or honest or lived up to the best in herself in the marriage. Right. And, and the church colludes in that, meaning the church culture colludes in that at least. So, Yeah, when you're talking about the tender poor wives right. that are going to be brokenhearted, uh, that's a pretty profound imagery to Absolutely. live up to. Instead of, hey, I'm a strong woman, I'm a confident woman, I'm upset yes. with you legitimately about something, and let's yeah. let's figure this out together as as partners and as Absolutely. lovers, exactly, and, as, and hopefully as friends moving forward. If not, then we've got a bigger issue. But hopefully, we can do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Co-constructing strong men and women who have a responsibility to each other and to themselves to be moral, good people. That's what I wish we would promote, but I think we we really are are still hanging on to that dependency protection model. And as you said earlier, and I fully agree, it breeds entitlement in the woman who's saying, hey, you were supposed to, I was supposed to be able to depend on you. And, uh, and I'm tenderhearted and broken over here and betrayed. And you owe me, buddy. <laughs> right. And right. so I can perp from the low ground. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? I can perpetrate. I can be, I can be hurtful. Uh, from my victim position. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then probably the last thing I'd add to all the things you mentioned is really opening up this conversation about what, what are we going to consider moral sexuality? You know, I think the church in a way has prescribed that for us very heteronormatively mm-hmm. and very, in a sense, kind of vanilla type ways. And if you're mm-hmm. into that, great, that works. <laughs> but if, um, if you have fantasies or desires or erotic templates that don't fit into that, then how do you negotiate that as a couple in ways that you both get to decide on that and not some outer authority? I think that's also part of the growing up process is not looking at the church as a parental role model that's going to tell you how to live your sex life. Absolutely. And, um, and so that's a really great opportunity. And to not let, you know, I talk to women a lot about not letting pornography hold them sexually hostage this idea that I can't mm-hmm. now remind him of porn, I can't act like porn, I can't do what they do in porn. And that's really hard because they're just having basic sex in porn, right? And so they're right. doing other things too, but there's a lot of just very normative type stuff happening in porn. And so you can't let um, 
your own sexuality be diminished or, you know, I've got to be this kind of tight guardian of sexuality because I can't ever be reminding him of what he might have looked at during porn. Right. Exactly. You know, and it's hard to put in a couple sentences what I think our goal is sexually, but I think how I would say it is, you know, if you're, if you're really going to be in a loving marriage, which I think our faith really supports because we support the idea that development happens through the agitation of marriage. Basically, marriage pressures your development, and I could not agree more with that. I think if there's ever a place to learn what it means to love, it's going to be in the crucible of marriage. Um, I think that what it means is that you learn how to make room for two people. And that sounds very simple, but that's not simple. It's like, am I really going to expand myself enough to make room for what is good in you? I don't need to put up with garbage in you, okay? that There's nothing virtuous in putting up in, with indecent, disrespectful, disloyal behavior. There's nothing virtuous about colluding in that. But am I going to make room for the best in you and me to show up and tolerate the way that that will expand who I am? And make me sacrifice some things that matter to me for things that matter more, like our marriage and our friendship. And that's a courageous process. That's what spiritual and personal development is and sexual development. Because as I've said probably ad nauseum, sex isn't either good or bad. Sex is good or bad based on what you do with it relationally, how it impacts who you are and how it impacts those that you're in connection with. And so then there's a harder question of like, am I using my sexuality for goodness or not? And we want to say goodness is missionary position, nothing outside of my comfort zone. That's what we want to sell, all of us, even though we might have different place. But goodness is what really creates strength here. Goodness is often being willing to step outside of your comfort zone. Growth is always stepping outside of your comfort zone. And happy marriages are growing marriages. And so there's nothing going wrong when you're in that process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I agree about the crucible and I agree about the growth. And especially when we come from a place where we do have conflicting messages, oftentimes discomfort is seen as if you're feeling uncomfortable with something, well, that must be from an evil source, right? Right. But right. I, I totally agree that we also have the many messages that say, of course, it's going to be uncomfortable to, to grow. And anytime you're getting married, you're really marrying into a different culture, <laughs> a different, right. a Definitely. different space that, that you're going to have to negotiate on continually. I love Esther Perel, who says you're going to be married to two to three people throughout your life as long as we live these right. days. And you've got to decide if that's to the same person or not. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, another way of saying that discomfort for growth is really what faith is, is that I believe that I'm reaching towards something that's good, even though I don't yet have a handle on it, but I'm willing to reach for it anyway. I'm willing to be uncomfortable because I, I feel like this is the right thing to do, even though I don't, I don't, I haven't yet mastered it or I don't have a full sense of what it is. And, you know, even the planting of a seed in Alma 32 is like, you know, sometimes you just have to try things. You've got to push yourself and let yourself make mistakes um, and change your mind and so on as a part of that expansive process that's all fundamental to human development that is at the core of, of the gospel, in my opinion. 
The only thing I would add, too, to your comment about you don't have to put up with indecency, at the same time, I would say we do have to be willing to put up with weakness, you know, that as we show up, just like we want somebody to accept our weak spots, we need to be able to be willing to accept our partner's weaknesses and areas where they need to develop. And that's different than putting up with indecency or abusive behavior. Yes. I mean, I, I agree with you. I'll say it slightly differently, though. I mean, this is a – I'm borrowing a, a quote from David Schnarch where basically love is giving your spouse the fewest of your limitations that they have to deal with. Love isn't, hey, live within my limitations. So certainly we're showing up as works in progress and – we are going to be imperfect with one another inherently. There's no getting around it. But saying, hey, you have to live, this makes me uncomfortable, therefore you have to live with it, is not love. <laughs> and colluding in that is not love. Like I said earlier, that we want to call it love, but it's it's fear-based and it's a collusion in our non-development, which I'm, is not the same thing as me saying be a tyrant and don't put up with any limitations in your spouse. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, stand up for uh, goodness in yourself and in the other person. Well, as usual, it's been wonderful talking with you. We have great conversations about these types of issues. I know. Can I, yeah. Can I just ask you to give us any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to leave us with? Well, a couple thoughts. I love that I get to have these conversations with, with you, Natasha, because you're awesome. And I love our Mormon people and like the, the what I very often see is a real earnestness to sort through these issues and to do goodness around this stuff and trying to make sense of it all. And I respect that process in in all of us. It's looking like um, that I'm going to be hosting a tour of Europe, uh, not of Europe, of Italy next summer for Mormons. Um, there's there's going to be a um, I've been asked to be like the the main presenter and it's the 11 day tour in Italy that will include seeing the new temple that they're building in Rome, which before it's dedicated so people can tour it and then we'll go see the Vatican. I'm not responsible for organizing the tour itself, but I will be doing a couple's sexuality retreat kind of thing through the 11 days in Italy, romantic Italy. So anyway, so if anyone listening to this is interested in that, um, there's going to be more information coming out about that. So that's awesome. That sounds amazing. If you're interested, that would be a good time and money spent with Jennifer for sure. So she does really good work. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. I think this was a very useful discussion. And I hope uh, listeners can can find some wisdom in, in what we've shared and hopefully be applicable information for the the situations that many of us are dealing with. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Natasha. We took the long road home Turned minutes into miles And as the evening traveled on The sunset bathed your smile We 
stop beneath the desert stars, wrapped in each other's arms. Was as simple as I love you, an ordinary, extraordinary. Sometimes we fell apart. We always came back home. Was as simple as I love you, an ordinary, extraordinary. Ordinary, no, it's extraordinary. 